Welcome to Crazy Crimes with Kara. I'm your host, Kara, and we'll be diving into a world of people who have their own brand of crazy. Serial killers, regular murderers, disappearances, unsolved mysteries, and maybe even some odd sightings of make-believe creatures. Or are they? Buckle up, buttercup. It's about to be one hell of a ride. This go-round, we're talking about Arizona. Dry, hot, dusty, deserty, sandy, any other E that you could think of, Arizona. Where I would not live because I don't like the heat at all. But we're talking about Arizona. So, the crime that I have in front of me is... Well, it's a lot of crimes. It's the baseline killer or the baseline rapist, as he was known originally, because he got his name from Baseline Road near Phoenix, or in Phoenix, I should say, and all of his crimes escalated. They were kind of all over the place. He was back and forth, like, let me kill somebody, let me rape somebody, let me rob somebody. I mean, he was really all over the place, so... I have a timeline of events that are kind of wild that I'm going to run through really quick. And then we're going to get into the nitty gritty of who he actually was. Now, I'm not listing victims names or anything like that because a lot of these people were minors. And you can get access to their names, but I don't want to put their name out there. Even though this was 15 years ago, I would still be pretty shook up about it. If I were them. So I'm not putting their names out there. Not at this moment. If they're older, yes. Younger, no. Absolutely not. So we're starting on August 6, 2005 with a sexual assault on Baseline Road where police say a man forced three teenagers behind a church near Baseline Road and molested two of the three girls. I don't know what happened to the third one. Nothing's ever said if they testify against him none of that is ever said so august 14th 2005 combined sexual assault and robbery august 8 2005 homicide so we're we've already got in a month's time two sexual assaults one robbery and a homicide in a month 31 days and this man has jumped from one extreme to another now the kicker that actually got this man caught was a sexual assault on two sisters. They're walking home from the park late at night, about 1030. And one of them is very much pregnant and they were approached by a man that was armed with a gun. He sexually assaulted the sister that wasn't pregnant while pushing the gun into the sister that was pregnant's stomach And he actually ended up getting arrested a year later when his DNA profile matched other women that were raped by the baseline killer. And that was how they actually ended up catching him was these two girls right here. Now, September 28th, he had a robbery again on Baseline Road. And then he also had a combined sexual assault and robbery on Central Avenue in Phoenix. So he's jumping around same day, two robberies, one sexual assault. 
November 3rd, he had a robbery. And then 10 minutes later, he sexually assaulted a female. And he actually made the victim drive him elsewhere because he told her after he raped her that he had just robbed the store and he needed to get away. So he made his victim drive him away from his double crime scene. And she stated that he had worn a Halloween costume and also had on black plastic glasses. So he was trying to cover up who he was. And then November 7th, he had three separate robberies. So he had, he held four people at gunpoint inside of Los Brasses, which is apparently a Mexican restaurant. And then he went next door to Little Caesars and robbed them, three people there. And then immediately preceding that, he robbed four people outside just on the street. And around that, he got $463 from robbing people inside these stores. $463 with a total of, what is that? Four, eight, 11 people. He robbed 11 people for $463 and apparently fired a round from his pistol into the air as he ran off. I don't know what the purpose of that was. We don't waste ammunition these days. On December 12, 2005, there was a homicide reported on 40th Street. Her name was Tina Washington. She was 39 and she was on her way home from the preschool she worked at. When a witness spotted the man drawing a gun and standing over her body behind a fast food restaurant. And she had been shot in the head. December 13th, so the very next day, a woman was robbed. And then February 20th, 2006, the bodies of 38-year-old Romila Vargas and 34-year-old Marina Palma Roman were found shot to death inside their snack truck. Police didn't connect this crime to the baseline killer originally. They thought the murders were drug-related, but they were officially linked later in July of that year. This is 2006 now, by the way. So from March to July, it took them to link him to these crimes. And then March 29, 2006, a body was discovered north of 24th Street in Phoenix. A local businessman noticed streaks of blood on the gravel of a parking lot, and the police were called, but a search of the area turned up nothing of real value. A week later, the businessman discovered the badly decomposed body of Kristen Nicole Gibbons as he was investigating a horrible odor in the area. She had been shot. So this man sees blood. He calls the police exactly like he's supposed to do, they find nothing. And a week later, when things start getting really smelly, this man is able to find it himself. So the police obviously weren't super concerned with finding a body if it only took a smell to draw this man to it. It couldn't have been that far away. Now, May 1st, 2006, uh, a man in a latex Halloween mask abducted a woman in a car and sexually assaulted her at gunpoint. And then she was taken from outside the same restaurant where the November 7, 2005 crimes occurred. So that where he robbed 
those 11 people for their $463 because he's a cheap bastard. It's the exact same place right in front of these restaurants and nobody fucking notices that it's the same man. Mind blowing. Now, May 5th, 2006, uh, the Phoenix police went public with the list of the 18 crimes because they found that he had used the same gun in all of these crimes and the ones where there were shell casings, the homicides, some of the robberies uh, where he had fired around into the air, things like that. He had left a shell casing behind, and all of these shell casings are matching. And then for the rapes, all of these um, DNA profiles are matching. So we have multiple links of evidence, but not a suspect quite yet. Now, June 26, 2006, there was another homicide. Carmen Miranda, 37, was abducted from a self-service car wash located about half a block from those robberies again. So he's still staying to the, sticking very, very close to the same area while she was on her phone and she was found dead from a gunshot to the head behind a barber shop about a hundred yards away from the car wash. Now the attack was actually found out to be on closed circuit television. So they had security cameras in this car wash. And this ended up being the last crime that he would be capable of committing. So on September 4th, 2006, Phoenix police announced they had an arrest that was in connection with the sexual assault that they had previously linked to the baseline killer while serving a search warrant at 28th Street and Pinoch Avenue. Pinoch, Pinoch. I don't know, I'm not from Phoenix. Don't come for me. Anyway, police arrested Mark Goudeau, a construction worker who was 42 years old that lived in Phoenix. He was charged with attacking the two sisters on September 20th, 2005, while they were walking home from the Phoenix City Park. Now this is the sister he assaulted, as well as the pregnant sister, and he was tried and convicted on all 19 counts connected to the assault. And then he was tried and convicted of all of the murders, kidnappings, other assaults, robberies, so on and so forth. For all of these things, he was sentenced to 438 years. So... After all this is said and done, he gets nine death penalty charges for nine murders, eight women, and one man. They actually ended up connecting to him. And during all this time, his wife's like, you've got the wrong man. Oh, he's such a sweet man. Friendly neighbor. Takes good care of his lawn. Like, that's fucking important. Who the fuck cares if you take good care of your lawn? It's grass. It's either going to die, burn, or grow. It'll come back eventually. You can plant more. It's not a big fucking deal on what your lawn looks like. But Arizona police said that Goudeau was an ex-convict who served 13 of a 21-year prison sentence for aggravated assault. In this aggravated assault, 
It included beating a woman's head with a barbell and armed robbery. So he pleaded down to get the aggravated assault charge. He had also originally been charged with rape and kidnapping. The rape charge was dropped because there was no physical evidence of the rape. So there could have been some vaginal trauma, but he probably wore a condom. They did state that in the assault on the two sisters that he did wear a condom, and he did also smear dirt to try and cover up the saliva that was on one of the sisters. So Arizona police have their man. After a 13-month reign of terror, the DNA matches, the ballistics match, they have all this circumstantial evidence that matches, all of this shit matches, and they're like, oh, mishandling of evidence. You had another suspect. One police officer wrote 116 pages stating why this other man could possibly be the killer and rapist where the police department compiling the evidence as a whole had about 20,000 pages of evidence that they had submitted for trial. So, you know, everybody's like, okay, we've got this guy and here's what he finally got charged with. 74 crimes, nine counts of first degree murder, five counts of sexual assault, three counts of attempted sexual assault, 10 counts of kidnapping, 12 counts of armed robbery, four counts of attempted armed robbery, three counts of sexual abuse, nine counts of sexual conduct with a minor, 13 counts of aggravated assault, and three counts of indecent exposure. Do you want to do something fun now? Because we've discussed torturous rape, sexual assault, murder, robberies, and all this crazy shit. Do you want to talk about something fun? Do you want to talk about a gold mine in Arizona that supposedly exists that nobody can find? Do you want to talk about that? Because I do. You ready? Are you ready? I don't think you're ready, but you better be. So we're going to talk about the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. And it's got a bunch of other names. But according to legend, it's this rich gold mine hidden somewhere in the southwestern United States. And the location is generally believed to be in the Superstition Mountains in eastern Arizona, east of Phoenix, whatever. That's where it's thought to be. And they named it after a German immigrant named Jacob Waltz, alive 1810 to 1891, who supposedly discovered it sometime while he was alive. And the term Dutchman is not actually referring to the fact that he's Dutch. That's just what dumbass Americans called people from Germany. They called them Dutchmen. What kind of fucked up shit is that? We don't even know who we're talking to anymore. Everybody's just, you're German? We're going to call you a Dutchman. Oh, you're Spanish? We're going to call you a Frenchman. What the fuck kind of shit is America up to, even in the 1800s? Holy shit. But the Lost Dutchman Mine is apparently... One of the most famous lost mines in American history, but it gets like a whole bunch of stories because people are like, oh, everybody's found the Lost Dutchman Mind or everybody's looking for it or whatever. So we have a Arizona place name expert, Bird Granger. Now remember him because we're going to talk about him a couple different times. So as of 1977, the Lost Dutchman story had been printed or cited at least six times more often 
than two other fairly known tales, the story of Captain Kidd's lost treasure and the story of the lost pegleg mine in California. But people have been seeking the lost Dutchman mine since at least 1982. Or, I'm sorry, 1892. So, one year after this Jacob Waltz dude kicks the bucket, people start hunting down this mine. According to an estimate, we have about 9,000 people annually that make some kind of effort to locate the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Now, this is from 1977. So... There are still about 5,000 people that are looking for the Lost Dutchman's Mine. It's still not been found 40 years later, 50 years later. People are still looking for it actively. But the former Arizona Attorney General Robert K. Corbin is among those who have looked for the mine. So fucking Arizonans, Arizonians, what are you guys called? Are you Arizonans, Arizonians? What are you? I need to know this. Fill me in on what Arizona peoples are called. But y'all motherfuckers is gold hunting legitimately. Yeah, you're out west where there are actual legitimate gold mines and things. But, I mean, somebody... 9,000 people going out trying to find a fucking gold mine. One gold mine is insane and nobody's ever found it. Which makes it even more insane. Anyway, now we have Robert Blair. Remember him as well, because we're going to talk about him a couple different times. And he says, there have been at least four legendary Lost Dutchman gold mines in the American West. This includes the famed Superstition Mine of Jacob Waltz. So this is the Lost Dutchman Mine we're discussing. Uh, one Lost Dutchman's Mine is said to be in Colorado, another in California, and two are located in Arizona. So there's supposed to be two that are located in Arizona. So tales of these other Lost Dutchman's mines can be traced to at least the 1870s. The earliest Lost Dutchman mine in Arizona was said to have been, been near Wickenburg, 110 miles northwest of the Superstition Mountains. A Dutchman was allegedly discovered dead in the desert near Wickenburg in the 1870s with saddlebags filled with gold. So Blair suggests that fragments of this legend probably have become attached to this mythical mine of Jacob Waltz. So he's like, this is not legitimate. This is, you know, the treasure hunter story of all stories. This is the, we are actively seeking something that doesn't exist kind of guy. Like this is the, the alternate version of things that go bump in the night that people tell the kids and said it's let me tell you this story of a Dutchman and a gold mine it's really gonna get your your goose going anyway Bird Granger says that fact and fiction kind of blend in but there are three main elements to the story the first is tales of the lost Apache gold or Dr. Thorne's mine which we'll get into in a second and second, tales about the lost Dutchman. And then the third is stories of soldiers lost gold vein. So, most complete versions of the lost Dutchman story incorporate all three of those legends. But Blair argues that kernels of truth at heart of each of these three main stories, though that they're popular, is just garbled from the actual account that happened. Other theories materialize and speculate the mine is buried at the bottom of the Apache or Roosevelt Lakes. So we have Granger who's like, 
this could be a thing, but people are kind of fucking it up because it's like that game you played when you were a little kid and you whispered into the next person's ear a, a, a sentence. And then by the time that it got to the last person in the circle, it was like a big fuck up of, you know, you could have said, I like lemonade. And the thing that comes out is kid rock is amazing, which is nothing alike. So there could be a gold mine. People believe there is a gold mine. There probably is a gold mine because I mean, People literally traveled out west for gold mines. But in 1977, Mr. Bird Granger identified 62 variants of the lost gold, uh, or I'm sorry, the lost Dutchman story. And some of the variants are just little tiny things, but others are like huge that cast the story in a totally different light from other versions. So when they have two intersected stories, like the one I'm about to tell you, they're thinking this is a little bit better than if they were to have just one of these stories. So this one says members of the Apache tribe are said to have had a very rich gold mine located in the superstition mountains. Famed Apache Geronimo is sometimes mentioned in relation to this story. In most variants of the story, the family of a man called Miguel Peralta discovered the mine and began mining the gold there only to be attacked or massacred by Apaches in about 1850 in the supposed Peralta massacre. Years later, a man named Dr. Thorne treats an ailing or wounded Apache and is rewarded with a trip to a rich gold mine where he's blindfolded, escorted, allowed to fill his pockets and as much as he can carry. And then he's blindfolded and escorted back. And he, it said that Dr. Thorne is either unwilling or unable to relocate the mine. Most likely because of the Pedro de Peralta had been the Spanish governor of New Mexico in the 1600s and the family name of Peralta was the inspiration for a number of legends in the American Southwest. That's why they're thinking that the Peraltas are involved or maybe um, there was a land grant from the King of Spain saying that they can have this land in New Mexico and Arizona and possibly other little sections of states that exist now and didn't exist then. That, but this area supposedly included the Superstition Mountains. But the Peralta Massacre is a legend that Apache supposedly ambushed a mining expedition the Peralta family sent into the mountains. Uh, some carved stones in the area that ref that are referred to as Peralta stones and Spanish texts and crude maps on these rocks. And they're considered to be clues to the location of that gold mine in the Superstition Mountains. Although most of them believe the stones are modern fakes. Most people are like, no, that's not legitimate. <clears throat> but the lack of historical records says... We don't really know if the Peralta family ever even owned any land besides a little bit of land that they're known to have owned, which had their family property and so on on it. We don't know if they owned anything else. But Mr. Blair over here insists that the Peralta portion of the story is unreliable. And he wrote, and I quote, the operation of a gold mine in the superstitions by a Peralta family is a contra contrivance, if I could fucking read, contrivance, which is not a word that we would use 
now of 20th century writers. But a man named Miguel Peralta and his family did operate a a successful mine in the 1860s, but near Valencia, California, not Arizona. So, it is what it is. It says the mine was quite profitable and it earned about $35,000 in less than a year. These people made bank. $35,000 in 1860, you're talking millions now. Um, Blair described this as an unusually good return for them for such a small gold mine to earn such a relatively brief period, a massive amount. And as of 1975, ruins of that mine were still standing and you could still see it. There's nothing left in it. Leave it alone. Don't go looking for that mine in California either. However... The Peralta mine eventually became unprofitable, and after the money was gone, Miguel Peralta turned to fraud. Good job, sir. Um, Dr. George M. Willing, Jr. Well, that's a hell of a name. Okay, then. Paid Peralta $20,000 for the mining rights for an enormous swath of land. So, about 3 million acres in southern Arizona and New Mexico based on a deed originally granted by the Spanish Empire in the 18th century. And then trouble came after Willing learned that the deed was entirely bogus. So, this is probably where people are getting that Peralta's own this land. This is probably where that theory is coming from. The land grant was based off of the James Revis Arizona land swindle. And Rebus became Willing's partner and continued to try to prove the authenticity of the land grant for years after Dr. Willing died. So, Blair argued that this Peralta story, which is well known to Arizona residents, was eventually incorporated into the Lost Dutchman story. And it just got super distorted and kind of renewed the interest in the Lost Dutchman's mind in the 30s, in the 1930s. So, maybe... They were looking for a reason to be like, hey, you need to get outside and look at things and and search for things during the Great Depression because we need gold. You know, you never know. Since James Revis was the Baron of Arizona and he was convicted of fraud when the Peralta family genealogy and other documents to support that land grant were determined to be forgeries, it raises questions about the original purchase of the land grant by Dr. Willing. So... These transactions had supposedly occurred at a primitive campsite in southeast Prescott without the benefit of the typical documentation. Instead of a notarized deed, the conveyance was recorded on a piece of greasy camp paper bearing signatures of several witnesses. Now, Dr. Willing died in 1874 before he had been through a thorough investigation of these documents or had the opportunity to be cross-examined on the sand like they did with Rebus. Another detail that cast doubt on the story in Blair's opinion is that there was never any Dr. Thorne in the employee of the army or in the federal government in the 1860s. So because somebody fucked up somebody's name, he's like, no, this doesn't fucking exist. You idiots. Like, what are you doing? 
So the origin of this story can be traced to a doctor named Thorne who was in private practice in New Mexico in the 1860s. And Thorne claimed that he was taken captive by Navajos in 1854 and that during his captivity, he had discovered a rich gold vein. Thorne related his claims to three soldiers in around 1858. And those three soldiers set out to find the gold and never did. And over decades, this tale gradually was absorbed into the Lost Dutchman story. So there are three parts. We do have three parts that they are coming to find. And they are included in a lot of these. But there's another one. This tale involves two German men. Jacob Waltz, the original person for the Lost Dutchman's Mine, and Jacob Weiser. However, Blair said that there's a strong likelihood that there was never a second man named Weiser, but rather that a single person named Waltz was over the years turned into two men, so that way they could continue to evolve the Dutchman's Mine story. But Blair contended that the story can be divided into hawk and dove versions, depending on whether the Germans are said to behave violently or peacefully. In most versions of the tale, Jacob Waltz located a super rich mine in the Superstition Mountains. In many versions of that story, they helped to or rescued a member of the Peralta family and are rewarded by being told the location of the mine, which seems not logical and nobody's given up their fucking gold anyway Weiser's attacked and wounded by a marauding apache soldier but survives at least long enough to tell a man named dr walker about the mine waltz is also said to make a deathbed confession to julia thomas and draws or describes a crude map to the gold mine i have no fucking idea who julia thomas is none whatsoever so, if anybody knows who this person is that he's supposedly making a deathbed confession to, let me know. Because I don't fucking know. And I can't find anything about her. And I'm, I'm curious as to who the fuck she is. Because you can't just have a woman come out of nowhere. She just threw herself out there and she gets the confession of a gold mine. And I don't know who the fuck she is. Who are you, Julia? Who are you? Anyway... So, John Wilburn wrote a book called Dutchman's Lost Wedge of Gold in 1990. And he wrote that the Bulldog Gold Mine near Goldfield, Arizona, fits the description pretty well. And gave and he's saying that this is the location of the Jacob Waltz's lost mine. So, Wilburn states that geology indicates that there is no gold in the Superstition Mountains because there ended uh igneous in origin however in some versions the mine is actually a cache put there by the peraltas so it just kind of depends on what version you're hearing we'll probably never hear the original version which would be awesome but we'll never hear it because anybody that was alive in 1891 is not alive now and that makes me sad i can't talk to old people I mean, I can, but not that old. So then we have another tale with two, possibly more, army soldiers. And they're said to have had discovered a vein of almost pure gold in or near the Superstition Mountains. The soldiers 
allegedly presented some of the gold, but had to be killed or vanished soon after. So nobody else found the gold. So this account is actually dated to about 1870. Now here comes Blair and his negative Nancy fucking stories. And he says, a story may have its roots in the efforts of three U.S. soldiers to locate gold in the area of New Mexico based on an alleged true story related to them by Dr. Thorne of New Mexico. So he's thinking, okay, the Dr. Thorne in New Mexico that gets tied into this story, blah, blah, blah. So Blair cited evidence of the historical Jacob Waltz and suggested that additional evidence supports the core elements of the story that Waltz claimed to have discovered or at least heard of a rich gold vein. But Blair suggested that this core story was distorted in subsequent retelling and comparing the many variants of the Lost Dutchman story to the game of Chinese Whispers, which is exactly what I was talking about a minute ago, where the original count is distorted in multiple retellings of the tale. So the game you play as a kid when you whisper Look at that. And no, I actually didn't read this before. I was just like, ooh, lost gold mine. This is what I want to talk about. I didn't fucking really research this. So I'm reading it for the first time here and kind of throwing in my thoughts and shit. So Ruth's son was said to have learned about the Peralta mine from a man called Pedro Gonzalez. Um, and according to that story in about 1912, Erwin Ruth gave some legal aid to the Gonzaleses, saving him from almost certain imprisonment. So, in gratitude, Gonzales was like, hey, there's a mine in the Superstition Mountains, and it belonged to the Peralta family, and he gave him some antique maps of this site. And Gonzales er, claimed to be descended from the Peralta family on his mother's side. Erwin passed the information to his father, Adolf, who had a long-standing interest in lost mines and amateur exploration exploration so Adolf had fallen and badly broken several bones while seeking the lost peg leg mine in California and he had metal pins in his legs and used a cane to help him walk and then in June 1931 he did something I don't know what he did he did something uh, Ruth set out to locate that lost Peralta mine. So after he traveled to the region, he stayed for several several days at the ranch of Tex Barkley to outfit his expedition. Barkley repeatedly urged South to abandon his search for the mine because the terrain of the Superstition Mountains was treacherous, even for experienced outdoorsmen, let alone a 66-year-old man in the heat of Arizona with as many medical problems as this bastard had. But he's like, nah, fuck you. I'm going, we're going to find some fucking gold, you dumb bastard. So here we go. Ruth didn't return after two weeks. No trace of him could ever be found. But then, in December 1931, the Arizona Republic reported they found a human skull. So to determine if it was Ruth's, it was examined by this doctor, that has a crazy-ass name that only has a couple vowels in it that I'm not going to try and pronounce. I don't fucking know. Anyway, he was a well-respected anthropologist who was given several photos of Ruth, along with Ruth's dental records. And Mr. Kurt Gentry wrote, Dr. 
possibly identified the skull as that of Adolf Ruth. He further stated, after examining the two holes in the skull, it appeared that a shotgun or high-powered rifle had been fired through his head at almost point-blank range, making the small hole when a bullet entered and a large hole when it exited. So, we're getting into legitimate murder stories, lost gold mine, and I'm not sure what else. And I thought this was going to be fun, and now I'm like, what the fuck? I've never heard of this mine before I started a little bit of research. And I wanted something a little bit more light and airy and fun. And now we're like, oh, fuck, people are dying. Granted, it was 1932. You know. Mm. So, they say it's him. And then they also found his personal effects and somewhere close by, including a pistol, which wasn't missing any shells, and the metal pins that they used to mend his fucked up leg. But the map to the Peralta mine was said to be missing, that he supposedly had, you know. Though Ruth's checkbook was also recovered and proved to contain a note written by Ruth, wherein he claimed to have discovered the mine and gave detailed directions. Ruth ended his note with the phrase, Vinny Vitti Vici. But the authorities in Arizona didn't convene a criminal inquest regarding Ruth's death. They argued that Ruth had probably succumbed to thirst or heart disease. Though, as Gentry wrote, one official went so far as to suggest that Ruth might have committed suicide. While this theory did not ignore the two holes in his skull, it did fail to explain how Ruth had managed to remove and bury the empty shell, then relit his gun after shooting himself in the head. And those who held on to the more romantic murdered for the map story should let it go because there was no map, according to fucking Blair, the douchebag. He wrote, The National Wire Services picked up the story of Ruth's death and ran it for more than it was worth. Probably seeing the mysterious story as a welcome reprieve from the bleak news that was otherwise typical of the Great Depression. So throughout the 20th century, there's been all kinds of expeditions. Individuals continue to search. They're still not finding it. Um, there was one of the most professional and serious-minded efforts was led by an Oklahoma City private detective, Glenn McGill, who organized a bunch of different expeditions in the late 60s and early 70s and claimed on at least two occasions to have identified the location of the mine and later to concede that he was either mistaken or the locations were played out or bereft of gold. What is bereft? Bereft. We got to be fancy about these fucking words. Bereft. You, You could say the gold was gone. It was gone, honey. Gone. So, McGill's adventures were chronicled in the book The Killer Mountains by Kurt Gentry, who we talked about earlier because he talked about the death of Mr. Ruth. And since Adolf Ruth's death, there have been several other deaths or disappearances around the Superstition Mountains. Some searches for some searchers that have looked for the mine have disappeared in likely wilderness accidents. We have mid-1940s. Headless remains of prospector James A. Carvey. They were found after he disappeared. In his 1945 book about the Lost Dutchman's Mine, 
Thunder God's Gold. Barry Storm, pen name of John Griffith Clemson, claimed to have narrowly escaped from a mysterious sniper he dubbed Mr. X. Storm further speculated that Adolph Ruth might have been a victim of the same sniper. And then we have some newer accounts. You ready? In late November or early December of 2009, Denver, Colorado resident Jesse Capen, who was 35, went missing in the Tonto National Forest. His campsite and car were found abandoned shortly afterward, and he had known to have been obsessed with finding the mine for several years and had made previous trips to the area. Capen's body was found in November of 2012, so three years after he went missing, by a local search and rescue organization wedged into a crevice. The program disappeared, covered the case, mentioning others in the episodes The Dutchman's Curse. So if you want something to watch, disappeared, The Dutchman's Curse. Watch that because I'm probably going to. And then July 11, 2010, Utah hikers Curtis Merworth, who was 49, Ardine Charles, 66, and Malcolm Meeks, 41, went missing in the Superstition Mountains looking for the mine. Merworth had become lost in the same area in 2009, requiring a rescue. And on July 19th, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department called off the search for the lost men. They presumably, presumably, died in the summer heat. In January 2011, three sets of remains believed to be those lost men were recovered. So, in 1977, 292 acres abutting the Toronto National Forest were set aside as the Lost Dutchman State Park, and the park expanded to 320 acres in 1983. It's easily accessible about 40 miles east of Phoenix, on the Superstition Freeway, hiking and camping are popular activities, and there are several paths that go through the bush and cacti. The short Discovery Trail is a clear route with several placards giving the natural history of the area. So, Arizona, good on you for naming things the Lost Dutchman because you need to play up everything. Like, that is fucking perfect. I love it hate that all these people have died and went missing and did not expect all those twists and turns talking about a, you know, it does it or does it not exist story, but I'm here for it. Fuck yeah. Thank you guys so much for sticking around and listening to these wild tales with me. You can follow us on Instagram at crazy crazy crimes with Kara and that's Kara with a K. You can also email us at crazy crimes with Kara at gmail.com to share some of your crazy stories, whether that's a story um, about a brush with death or crazy sibling fight or something sweet and kind of silly. We'll read it all and we'd be happy to hear from you. I hope you enjoyed the ride and kept your seatbelt on tight. Stay safe out there and don't forget to find your brand of crazy.